Tim, have you ever felt undervalued, like everybody else in the choir was getting all of the high fives, all of the attention, and you were just sitting on the sidelines after the concert, even though, even though you were just as much a part of the performance as everybody else? <laughs> yep. Pretty familiar. <laughs> yep. I've lived the dream, as they say. Uh, and, you know, that's been the case in some of my past jobs, too. You know, or I was once leading a project, but once of the other people on the team really shined early on because they made this contribution that everybody fell in love with. Like this, it was this idea that everybody just loved. And then that person was the star throughout the whole thing. I, I know that story, man. I, I certainly do. Why, why do you ask? No, I, it wasn't me. That was the star. Oh. Was it? <laughs> right. I shone through. No, actually, no, no. You I, always, I, you always shine through with the, with the <laughs> great early ideas, by the way, always. No, no. I ask. I ask because this episode is a tale of an important contributor, right? A really important contributor who gets passed over because of another great idea showing up earlier in the story. We think that bias has gotten all the attention and noise has been completely neglected. And that's an imbalance we want to correct. We, of course, are not saying that noise doesn't matter, that bias doesn't matter. Bias is very important. Um, and we should do everything we can to try to address it. But noise is another source of error, which is a lot less visible and which in many cases may be just as important and, in fact, easier to address. Our guest in this episode is Olivier Siboni, and his concern, along with his co-authors, Nobel laureate Danny Kahneman and Cass Sunstein, is that we are missing opportunities to improve our decision-making abilities because of this one big thing. And that one big thing is called noise. Welcome to Behavior Groups, the podcast that explores human behavior through a behavioral science lens. I'm Kurt Nelson. And I'm Tim Houlihan. Behavioral Grooves is the podcast that explores the why we do what we do question with researchers, authors, and practitioners. And we do it in a conversational setting in order to bring their insights to you. We are super thrilled about this week's conversation, not just because it brings to light a subject that has long been ignored or overlooked, but because our guest is just simply amazing. Oh, isn't that the truth? Olivier Siboni is a professor, writer, and keynote speaker specializing in the quality of strategic thinking and the design of decision processes. Olivier teaches at HEC Paris, and he's also an associate fellow of Said Business School in Oxford University. Previously, Olivier spent 25 years with McKinsey, where he was a senior partner. Amazing guy. Yes, yes. And our conversation revolved around the idea that noise, or the unwanted variability in human judgment, is a large but mostly invisible problem for organizations around the world. 
it truly has been left on the sideline. We talked about what noise is, the different types of noise, and how we can do some decision hygiene in order to help protect us from really negative aspects of all of this. So with that, we invite you to sit back with a large glass overflowing with noise and listen to our conversation with Olivier Sibonet. Olivier Siboney, welcome to Behavioral Grooves. Thanks, Tim. It's great to have you here. We are very excited and excited to talk about the book. And we're going to get started with a speed round. So we want to know, which has the better wine, Bordeaux or Burgundy? I might surprise you on this one. I'm actually a big fan of uh, the wines from the south of France from Ooh. Languedoc, which are uh, much more reasonably priced than, uh, <laughs> than the Bordeaux or Burgundy wines. Next, I would actually go for the Rhone Valley, uh, which is Ooh. less reasonably priced. And, you know, I like Bordeaux and Burgundy as much as the next guy, but I, I try to be a little bit more well, w without going out of France, of course, a little bit more exotic. <laughs> why? Why would you go out of you, France of course, for exactly. wine? There is no reason in the world to go outside of France if you can. There you go. Unless, unless you're Italian, and then that's another <laughs> issue. But we're not. Then so. you get to pass. Yeah. Then, <laughs> and we, you know, Christina Bicchieri, who we've interviewed on the on the show, might have something to say about that. But other than that, we're we're good. Okay. Yes. Second question. Dinner with your favorite athlete or your favorite musician? Which would you prefer? Well, dinner with any one of my many favorite musicians over any any zero of my favorite athletes because I really don't have any favorite athletes. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> okay. That's an easy Sorry, enough guys, answer then. An easy one. A a any uh, favorite musicians come to mind? Who do you think would be a, a, a good dinner guest? Oh, you know, um, I, I have so much admiration for so many musicians. I'm, I'm actually not a huge fan of classical music, but I have huge admiration for classical musicians mm. just because the, the, the selection that they go through and the practice that they go through and the discipline that this requires is just incredibly amazing. Um, and, you know, I, I prefer to listen to other types of music myself, but I think my favorite dinner uh, guest would have to be a great classical pianist or violinist or someone like that. Yeah. Yeah. Yo-Yo Ma comes to my mind uh, in, in that world. Tremendous discipline, tremendous musicality. Uh, all that kind of stuff. Okay, but that this is the speed round, so I, I should keep <laughs> moving. Would you would you rather holiday in the mountains or on the beach? I would much rather holiday on the beach. Uh, I am not a big fan of the mountains in general, and especially not a big fan of the mountains in summer for some reason. It just depresses the hell out of me. But you know, <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> I should maybe give it another try. <laughs> <laughs> you know but, what but, you've been there done that don't need to give, go back I, if it depresses you I feel, right? trapped at this point. I feel trapped in the mountains in the summer but you know oh interesting in the winter not not so much yeah not so much not so much huh. interesting <laughs> all right that. final final speed round question 
which has gotten more attention, bias or noise? Well, that's the easiest one. Uh, so <laughs> <laughs> we, we are going we to lay up that softball for you. And um, obviously, the, the reason we, we wrote this book on noise is because we think that bias has gotten all the attention and noise has been completely neglected. And that's an imbalance we want to correct. We, of course, are not saying that noise doesn't matter, that bias doesn't matter. Bias is very important. Um, and we should do everything we can to try to address it. But noise is another source of error, which is a lot less visible and which in many cases may be just as important and, in fact, easier to address. So why do you think noise has not received the same amount of attention that bias has? So before I answer that, we should probably define noise a little bit, just so we don't get into uh, any uh, confusions. What we define as noise in, in the book Noise that uh, <laughs> Danny Kahneman, Cass Sunstein, and I uh, just completed is the unwanted variability in human judgments. And just to be clear, it's not the variability of opinions on anything, because you know, if you like the mountains and I like the beach, that's fine. That's not a problem. We're allowed to have different opinions on this. If you like tea and I like coffee, that's perfect. We're allowed to have different tastes. If you are trying to invent a new vaccine for COVID, and I'm trying to invent a new vaccine for COVID, and we take different routes to get there, that's brilliant because, you know, in the end, we'll see who gets a vaccine that works. And by the way, maybe we'll get two, which these days seems pretty useful. So there are many things where disagreement and variability is not unwelcome and where, in fact, it is very much welcome. Where we call it noise is when the question that we're talking about is what we call a matter of judgment. So if you go to the doctor and then you go to another doctor and they give you two di completely different diagnoses, one of them must be wrong. That's noise. If you forecast that next year GDP is going to grow 6% and Tim forecasts is going to be 8% and I forecast that it's going to be 10%, well, we've got three different judgments. That's noise. The difference with bias is that bias is the average error. So mm. suppose that we forecast 6, 8, and 10% GDP growth, and it turns out to be 8%. On average, we were right. We had no bias. But two of us were very wrong, <laughs> right? And yeah, if, yeah. if we only trusted one of us, we would have a pretty good chance of being far off. Likewise, if you have two doctors and one of them tends to underdiagnose a particular disease because he's not attentive enough to it, and another one who has a particular bias in favor of diagnosing that disease, over-diagnoses that particular disease, on average, they are diagnosing it appropriately. But for any particular patient, there is going to be a lot of errors. So noise is the variability in judgments that should be identical. And when the judgments are judgments that should be identical, it causes a lot of errors. That's what it is, basically. So why is... Why do you think bias has gotten so much more attention? There, I mean, we, we, we spent a lot of time thinking about that question because once you start looking at noise, it seems so obvious that it's a problem that you, you wonder why it hasn't been discussed much. And there are a few answers. First, people do expect 
that there are going to be differences of judgment, differences of opinion between people making judgments. If you ask, um, for instance, uh, people in an insurance company, underwriters who set quotes for insurance policies, if you ask them to give you quotes, that's a matter of judgment. And mm-hmm. if you ask the, the people in that insurance company, do you expect that your underwriters are in perfect agreement on everything, they're going to say, well, no, of course not. They are not machines. If we had an algorithm doing this, we would expect perfect consistency, but we have human beings. We need their judgment. We need their insight. And for that reason, we expect that you know, two people, if they were given the same case, would not be in perfect agreement. They should be in reasonable disagreement. This, in fact, defines a matter of judgment. That's where we expect a reasonable amount of disagreement, but not too much of it. And the surprise of noise is that we never actually pose to test that assumption. We never actually check whether there is as little disagreement as we think there is. In that particular insurance company, we ask them, so how much would be reasonable? And they said, well, you know, 10% would be a tolerable amount of disagreement. We could live with that. And we've since asked that question of a lot of executives, where we ask them, you know, take a judgment in your company like that, what would be a reasonable amount of disagreement between two randomly chosen people? And by and large, they say 10%. That's the model answer. Now, when you actually measure what noise is, in the insurance company, it was five times larger. It was 55%. When you took two underwriters at random, the difference between their estimates was 55% of the mean of the two estimates. That's much larger than people think. And every time we've done this experiment, we found that noise is much larger than people think. So the reason it has been neglected, or the first reason it has been neglected, is because it hasn't been measured as systematically as it should be, and therefore, people just assume, just assume that it's a small problem when, in fact, it's a large one. That's fantastic. So in the book, you state that you were surprised but also motivated to write the book because of the sheer magnitude of the system noise. And that's what I think you were just talking about. Yes. Um, it, and you talked about insurance, but you see this in other areas as well. Can you describe a little bit about some of those other areas that you talk about in the book to talk about that magnitude Absolutely impact? So. Because as, as soon as you start looking for noise, you find it everywhere. And there is, in fact, a lot of research, a lot of you know, library research that you can find where you find noise. In fact, we didn't do a lot of primary research here you know, because we mm-hmm. it, it would have taken a very long time. But there is a lot of research. Take, for instance, the judicial system. If you look at uh, studies where uh, the same judges have been given little vignettes, little case vignettes that say, you know, this crime was committed by this defendant who had this rap sheet and the following extenuating or aggravating circumstances and was a weapon used and how much was stolen. And, you know, a fairly detailed description of the case. Take... 16 cases like this, give them to 200 different federal judges, ask them what sentence they set. Of course, it depends on the the crime itself, but for an average crime, for the average of the 16 vignettes in that particular study, the average prison sentence was seven years. The mean difference between two judges judging the same case was 3.8 years. 
This tells you basically that the moment your case gets assigned to a judge, your sentence has gone from being on average seven years to being either five years or nine years. Is this acceptable? You, you, you tell me if as a citizen, as you know, someone who will have to face the justice system, you think this is acceptable. If you hesitate, let me ask you another question. If we told you that depending on the color of your skin or depending on your political opinion, your average sentence is going to be modified by 3.8 years, would you be outraged? I bet you would. Right? Yes. I mean, I'd, I'd be marching in, on the streets if something like this was, was proven. And somehow we don't work up the same level of outrage about random errors caused by noise as we do about what appear to be motivated errors, which we call bias. Mm. But in fact, they are, in many cases, as large or larger. That's another example. Another field in which we found a ton of noise, and as soon as you start looking you under various names, <laughs> you find it, uh, is medicine. People in, uh, in medical research do a lot of studies about what they call inter-rater variability of diagnosis, or sometimes intra-rater, meaning within the, same, uh, within the same practitioner. And there is a surprising amount of variability between people looking at the same cases. This has been studied, for instance, quite well in radiology, because it's not because radiologists are noisier than any other specialty, but because it's actually easier to measure it. You can take the same x-ray and show it to two different people and measure how often they disagree. They disagree quite a bit on things as well-known and as basic as the diagnosis of TB, for instance, but also on more sophisticated things. And another uh, interesting phenomenon in medicine is that the same practitioners vary in their judgments from one moment to the next. And we know this not because we show them the same patient in the morning and the afternoon, because they would say, mm, I remember this person. I've, <laughs> I've seen this patient already this morning. So they would actually remain consistent. But when you measure the effect of completely irrelevant, extraneous factors on their judgment, you find that it does have one. For instance, the time of day or the day of the week makes a big difference in how likely your doctor is to prescribe um, vaccines or to prescribe uh, cancer screening. It also makes a big difference in, wh in whether your doctor will prescribe opioids or another form of um, pain uh, management. So we find a lot of noise in medicine, not because, again, doctors are noisier than any other profession, but because it's been measured there. And it goes on and on. Yeah. Wherever you look, you find noise. And we came up with a little motto for the book, basically, which is wherever there is judgment, there is noise, and more of it than you think. Yeah. And what I found surprising, so when you bring up the medical piece, the other examples that you use, there's a part of me that kind of goes, yeah, I kind of expected that to a certain degree. The medical ones found was really surprising for me, particularly when you're looking at, you know, radiology charts where you go, these are experts. They have had years and years of training in looking at this. And you would, you know, I had made that big assumption that you give, you give a radiology chart or, or whatever that would be to two different doctors, and they're going to come with the same diagnosis. So we think that is a really poignant example because while the others are, are definitely 
you know, impactful and various different things. I, you know, for, at least for myself, it was one of those areas where I'm going, all right, I get that. I see that. That surprised me when you started talking about doctors. So on the other hand, you, you are, you know, if, if you were to receive a, you know, a, a bad diagnosis, you would probably be told to get a second opinion. That's a standard procedure. So that mm-hmm. there is some degree of disagreement between doctors is you know, implicit in that suggestion of getting a second opinion. Again, the surprise is that there is more of it than you think, more disagreement than you think. Yeah. What, the, the, the other way to think about the second opinion is that given how often the second opinion is different from the first, that forces you to wonder <laughs> how often the first would be different from the second if you would ever get it. And when you don't get a second opinion, you don't know how noisy the first one is. Another example that is striking, if you want to talk about domains in which you you didn't expect noise and you find it, is forensic science. Fingerprints. You you have been (laughs) taught, right? You have been told as as someone who watches uh, TV dramas on on forensic (laughs) scientists. Of course. That these guys are perfect. They, you know, when they when they see something, it's the truth with the capital T. It turns out we know this thanks mostly to the work of um, a cognitive scientist in in the UK called Etienne Dror, that um, forensic scientists and especially fingerprint experts are actually not as perfectly reliable as you would think they are. Now, they are not nearly as variable as the judges setting sentences or as the underwriters that we talked about. But where you expect zero variability, absolutely zero, there is in fact much more than you would think. You know, and the estimates vary from one place to the next, but it's it's not negligible. And if the information that you give those forensic scientists is designed in such a way as to bias them, it becomes actually quite sizable. So again, Wherever there is judgment, there is noise, and more of it than you think. Where you expect none, as in forensic science, there is a little bit. Where you expect a little bit, as in medicine, there is quite a bit. And where we expect you know, a significant amount, as in underwriting, there is a ton. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Olivia, you... Let's talk about mitigation methods, because uh, it's a wonderful thing uh, in the book. You spend a fair amount of time on a number of uh, noise mitigation tools. Uh, are, are there any that you feel could have the greatest impact on us? So we, you, 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 you write, Tim, we, we spend a lot of time on the, on, on the techniques to fight noise. Maybe that's partly my contribution to the book, because as a former management <laughs> consultant, I... <laughs> you know, I, I, I'm always keen to find solutions to the problems I identify. Um, you know, people who don't like consultants would tell you that I, I was keen to find solutions to problems that don't exist, but that's another issue. <laughs> this, this one at least does exist. So it's own form of noise, right? The, the, the technique we, or the, the principle we propose to address noise is what we call decision hygiene. And that bizarre phrase needs a little bit of explanation, perhaps. When you, when you identify a bias, say, you know, let's take our little forecasting example again. We, we're forecasting GDP, and we discover that year after year, the average of all the forecasters of the three of us and the other 10 people forecasting GDP with us, 
the average is always a little bit optimistic. We're always more bullish about the, the, the prospects for the economy than we should be. That's a bias. Once you've identified that, you know what the bias is. It's an optimistic bias in this case. And it's fairly easy to come up with remedies to that bias. You can give feedback to the people. You can just buffer or correct their estimates. You, you can do lots of things. That's because you've identified the problem. Noise, on the other hand, is unspecific, and you don't know in what direction it's going to drive the error. Because of noise, is my forecast going to be up or down relative to what the truth will be? And is your forecast going to be up or down? We don't know. We can't know. The, the very idea of noise implies that we don't know what problem we're trying to solve. So what we need to do here is analogous to what we do when we wash our hands. When we wash our hands, we don't know that the germ we're killing is the coronavirus, or that it's the virus of the flu, or that it's some other germ causing some other infection. We don't know, and if everything goes well, we will never know. If it works, we will never know what we prevented. It's prevention, it's prevention of something unspecific, it's hygiene. What we need to do against noise is the same thing that we do when we wash our hands. We need to combat an invisible enemy, an unidentified enemy, and we need to prevent the effects of that enemy or the, the, the damage that that enemy does without knowing what that damage would look like. It's essentially all preventative. This is tricky because it's a little bit unrewarding. Right, I mean, washing your hands. You know, if you're if you're a doctor and you see someone coming in with a disease and you have the cure and you cure them, you know, when you go home in the evening, you say another good day in the office. I've done something useful and visible and and satisfying. When you wash your hands, you don't have that warm fuzzy feeling of you know having having slain the 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 beast no. that you were trying to combat, and. That's the difficult thing about combating noise. We need to get into that habit of having a good decision hygiene that prevents noise from creeping into our decisions. That's the basic principle. I think, I, 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 sorry about the long-winded explanation here, but I think it's important to outline the idea before we, we, we give some specific uh, methods. No, that's actually fantastic. Thank you for, for, for doing that. Um, then getting back to this question, we these are large institutional – the book addresses many institutional issues that could be addressed uh, by attacking noise and mitigating noise. Um, were there any that you th thought had sort of more promise for making a difference uh, in, our, in, in our lives? Individual lives. Individual lives, yes. Many, you mean any uh, institutions that uh, uh, any uh, mitigation, any, ah. any of the mitigation techniques? Excuse me, I'm sorry for not no, no. being more specific. Um, so it depends a lot on the context, on the environment in which you are going to operate. Uh, in medicine, for instance, since we were talking about that, one technique that has given quite impressive results in some fields, but not in all fields of medicine, by the way is uh, guidelines, is to establish mm. rules, essentially, or, or guidelines that tell you how to think about approaching a particular diagnosis. Take, for instance, something that is quite well known now, where 
when when babies are born, instead of making a, a holistic judgment where you look at the baby and you say, well, this baby is in good health, all fine, uh, nurses and uh, midwives and uh, doctors go through a checklist called the Abgar checklist after the uh, obstetrician who invented it. And they go through the, the five checks of the Abgar checklist. That's essentially a guideline that tells them, here's how to evaluate how a baby is doing. Now, it's a very simple example. There are lots of other guidelines in medicine. There are lots of guidelines in other fields. It's a way of breaking down the judgment into discrete pieces that you can make in a more analytical, fact-based manner so that your overall judgment is more reliable, is, is more accurate. That's one technique that works very well in many fields. On the other hand, in other fields, it's not going to work because people are going to say, well, in, in a courtroom, for instance, it's very difficult to come up with a guideline that does justice to the immense variety of situations. Or uh, in, in many other domains, you're going to say that doesn't work, we need to do something else. So there are other techniques and picking what noise reduction technique works is in fact uh, not something that is, is, is not something where we can tell you, you know, in, in this problem, do this. We hope that in the fullness of time, research will have progressed on this and that there will be a much more prescriptive view of how to pick the right mitigation techniques to address any particular problem, but we're not there yet. Yeah. One of the things that you brought up in the book, uh, one of these, you know, hygiene, decision hygiene methods was just about mindset and keeping and as I think you called it the actively open minded mindset, um, which I found really fascinating, because I think it's great. But can you explain to our listeners what that is and, and what that process is? Because I thought that was one that again, we can try to do uh, in our everyday lives pretty much across all, all domains. Yeah, so one question that we asked ourselves was, you know, if we're talking about the variability of judgment, on some things it's just variability because we don't know who's right and who's wrong, right? So when the, the, the judges say five years for this guy and another judge says nine years for this guy, well, that's a matter of evaluation by these different judges. But sometimes judgments have a true value. When you go to the doctor and one doctor says this is cancer and the other one says this is benign, one of them is right and the other is wrong. And in those cases, in those cases that have a true value, as we call it, we can actually ask ourselves what sort of features of the judge, of the individual making the decision, the judge in the judgment and decision-making sense, in the abstract sense, what features of the person making the judgment are conducive to making better judgments? And there are three types of answers. The first two are semi-obvious, and the third one is intriguing. The first two are, first of all, if you know what you're doing, that helps. If you're, if you're making a diagnosis of cancer, it's better to be an oncologist than a plumber. That's you know, obvious, and of course, even within each profession, some people are better than others, so skill matters. The second one, which is a bit less obvious, is that, by and large, it's better if you're smart. So if you are a high IQ person, that correlates with the quality of your judgments. Not perfectly, of course, but you know it's a pretty good predictor of the quality of judgments. But what seems to be the most 
important feature of people who make good judgments is not you know, how well they think, which is these two things, it's how they think, it's the style that they bring to the problem solving. And there are many different names for that, but the one that we found the most um, the, the, the most compelling is this idea of actively open-minded thinking. Actively open-minded thinking, which is a phrase that was coined by Jonathan Barron, the, the psychologist, is a form of thinking where you actually look, you actively look for evidence and for opinions that would contradict you. And you are looking for excuses to change your mind. You are not actually set in your views, but you are very keen to change your mind. You think that changing your mind on the basis of facts is not a sign of weakness, but a sign of good character. You think that people who uh, have very firm and set views are, uh, you know, are people you should feel sorry for. You know, that's the sort of thinking that, you know, that, that leads people to have better judgments. And what I find quite intriguing about this and, and, and almost scary is that a lot of the, much of what we, we regard as leadership, much of the stereotype of leadership is the opposite of that. Mm. We, when we think of leaders, we think of people who are committed, decisive, unwavering, unwilling to change their mind unwilling to listen to naysayers, undaunted by adversity, and, and who, you know, and, and, and the, the models that were given all the time of people we, we should emulate are you know, people who, who were told a hundred times that this would never work and who persisted nonetheless because they just knew that they were right and that everybody else was wrong. Of course, we hear only about the ones who survived in, in those cases. <laughs> the good old survivor bias. But this, yeah. keeps, you know, this keeps reinforcing the stereotype that leadership is about making a decision quickly and sticking to it and making sure that everybody follows you. The more we look at what characterizes good judgment and the more it seems to be just the opposite of that. That's something that I think leaders should think about. I loved how you you quoted uh, in that section. You quoted John Maynard Keynes on the when he said, uh, "When the facts change, I change my mind." What do you do? <laughs> it's it's brilliant, <laughs> and I'm and I'm it, so glad. It's brilliant, but you know, ask you know, ask many of the politicians dealing with the COVID nineteen crisis, and they will tell you that it's awfully difficult to change your mind when the facts change because the, the electorate, I mean, the, the, the voters or the voters expect or they think the voters expect, that's a tricky question, mm-hmm. that uh-huh. if they admit they have been wrong, it's a sign of weakness and that therefore they should try to, you know, first of all, stay on the same course for as long as they can and if they end up having to change course somehow obfuscate and pretend that this was all part of the plan rather than saying the facts have changed, I changed my mind. It's yeah. difficult when you're in a position of leadership to do that. It, it is. is. And I think there's, as we all know, confirmation bias plays into this and all of those factors too. We interviewed um, Gary Latham and he said it one of the best ways is that, you know, he was looking at things and said, oh, this will never happen. And he had his research assistant do some research on this certain area and it came back and it said, 
look, the research says that this is different. And he's like changing his mind and said, but it's really hard because I think most people don't take that scientific approach to this. Let's say if like a scientist thinks and says, all right, or like John Maynard Keynes said, look, if the data says that this is different or the data, the information changes, then my opinion has to change. And we're not taught that in school. I mean, this is going down a whole different rabbit hole than, than where we're going. But I, I think there's a big miss in many of our educational components. Because again, you look at it, it's like, all right, here's the history book. And you need to know the dates and the answers. And those don't change. Same thing with math. Here's the math thing. But most of the decisions that we make in life aren't necessarily just those yes and no questions. They have these gradients. And to be able to say more information comes in, we need to change that initial opinion is not something that I think we are taught as children in our educational system. Sorry for me pontificating over no, there. but you're, you're absolutely right. And I, I would even add to that, that even when we are taught to, um, to practice experimental science, right? When we do you know, chemistry or, or physics experiments at school, we are taught by and large to derive general rules from that. Mm. And even people with scientific training struggle with the sort of uh, habit of mind that we're talking about here because, and this is an experience I've had lots of times with, uh, with uh, CEOs in my, in my previous career as a consultant. You you tell them, uh, you know, this works. We know from management research that this works. And they will say something like, oh, but I know a company in which it didn't work. <laughs> and in, in a way, that makes a lot of sense. Because if I told them, you know, water boils at 100 degrees Celsius, and they told me, well, I'm sorry, but, you know, I've tried it and it doesn't work in, in my lab it boils at 80 degrees celsius that would actually invalidate the the law that i claim exists so if you are talking about you know basic laws of physics or chemistry or whatever you know one counterexample disproves the rule mm-hmm. what we're talking about in the in the real world in the world of you know in, in the social world are not rules like that they are statistical rules and it's very hard for people in positions of authority, you know, mostly business executives, but it's the same in government, to accept the idea that you can be scientifically minded in the sense that you want to do what has the highest probability of working while accepting that we're dealing with probabilities and that you do mm-hmm. not guarantee the success of a particular initiative in the same way that you can guarantee that water will boil if you heat it to 100 degrees. Celsius. In the book, you. I want to go back to, to noise and, and get a little bit clearer definition because in the no, in, in the book you talk about different types of noise. Yes, and you you labeled them in different things. And again, we don't need to get into a thesis of this, but just a, no. really quick for our listeners, could you kind of describe what those different types of noise are and why they're different? Yeah, really quickly, it's actually quite simple. Let's take the example of judges, and we're going to see that there are three types. There are two that are obvious. And the most interesting and largest one is the third that really isn't. The first type is the one I was talking about earlier. If you know that you know, Judge, um, Judge Joe is a tough, hanging uh, judge, and Judge uh, you know, Bob is a lenient, um, bleeding-hard judge, 
that is the first type of noise. On average, people have different levels. And that's the, the same thing in, in, in any evaluation. You know, my, my students know which professors are tough graders and which are lenient <laughs> graders. In, in any company, you know that some people have a manager who is a tough evaluator and others have a manager who is uh, a nice, generous evaluator who gives everybody the highest grade. So that's the first thing is the difference between the average level of the judges. And we call this level noise, the variability of those levels. The second thing, which is nearly as obvious and probably a bit larger than we think it is, but not much larger than we think it is, is that the the lenient judge or the tough judge may be in a good mood or a bad mood. And even the lenient judge is not the same judge in the morning and in the afternoon, before lunch and after lunch, on Monday and on Friday, on Monday when his favorite football team lost the game during the weekend, (laughs) and on Monday when his football team uh, won the game during the weekend. All these are actual examples, by the way, where it has been measured that the the results of the football team does have an impact on the, 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 the judge on the Monday morning. So this is what we call occasion noise. The occasion matters. The fact that you... Are you, the judge, are looking at this particular case at a particular time on a particular occasion makes a difference. And for a long time, we thought that was it, that these two things were basically the sum total of noise. But in fact, the largest component is a third one, which is much trickier to wrap your mind around, which is this. When two different judges who may be more lenient, one may be more lenient than the other or not, forget about that, that's not what we're talking about. When two different judges look at the same five defendants, they don't have the same ranking of how bad what those defendants have done is. Mm -hmm. So I could be more severe than you on average, but still be more lenient with one particular defendant because I'm tough on average, but I'm lenient with white-collar defendant. Or you could be tougher than me in general, more lenient than me in general, but much more severe with one particular guy because people who break the speed limit and kill someone really get on your nerves. That's something that you are much more severe than the average judge about. There is a pattern to your judgment as a judge. You actually have a set of tastes, a set Mm. of individual preferences. You have a personality as a judge, or as a doctor, or as an underwriter. Yes, even underwriters have personalities. You, or, you, you know, you, not, well, not big personalities. Well, <laughs> they're hard to find, but they're there, right? Yeah. So when you make judgments, you bring all your history and your uh, prejudices and biases, of course, but without prejudices and biases, you bring all your training and your education and what you think is more important and what you think is less important and what you, you, the mistakes you've made and where you've been burned and you've learned your lessons and the mistakes you haven't made and you haven't learned your lessons, we're all different in these respects. And therefore, irrespective of our average level of judgment, our pattern of judgments on individual cases is going to be different. And this, in every case that we've looked at, is by far the largest component of the three, which is really intriguing because this is about our personalities. This is about us. This is what makes us unique. 
we've been told, we've, we believe, I believe at least, that being unique is good, right? Being different from everybody else is pretty cool. And, you know, I, I like that you're different from me and that we have different views on everything. And when we come to problems of judgment, the fact that we let this individuality, this originality, this uniqueness of every person express itself actually becomes a liability if what we want is consistency in judgments. So those are the three types of noise. That That is fantastic. Thank you, Olivier, for, for sharing that. That's a, Those are fantastic examples too. This might be a small thing, but it really struck me in the book that moral models are becoming more prevalent in our discussions about decision-making and strategy. Uh, Max Bazerman recently wrote a book on it, uh, you know, about uh, about these moral models, basically extolling the virtues of utilitarianism. And uh, you mentioned Bentham's utilitarianism and sort of position it against Kant's uh, deontological uh, approach. And and in your discussions with CEOs and in in writing the book about judgment and decision making, do you think that these philosophies sort of deserve more discussion? Do you think that, that we're leading into a period where, like noise, needs more highlight? Could these uh, these moral philosophical foundations also deserve more discussion? I think they do, but I don't want to mislead anybody leading the book into expecting a, a lengthy discussion. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> yes, it was, it was a little. It, it, it was a small. It was a small <laughs> thing, but I, it really attracted my attention. Yes. So I'm glad it did because I'm I'm quite fond of it, but. It was just a comment made in passing to to highlight the fact that if people have different uh, moral... In fact, the, the point we were trying to make there is that you could, oddly enough, uh, agree with people who disagree with each other. Mm-hmm. So if you are... if you, in, in the example we're giving there, if you are listening to a debate between three philosophers who have completely different sets of uh, underlying beliefs and principles... You might find yourself, at least I find myself quite often, um, you know, in, in awe of the, of the brilliance of their thinking and the clarity of their arguments and uh, the eloquence with which they argue their case. And despite the fact that they're in complete disagreement, I still somehow manage to agree with them all, or not to agree with them all, but to, <laughs> to have a lot of respect for them all. And you, you were asking earlier, you know, how, how is it that we so often do not notice noise? That's part of the reason, too. We can have a lot of respect for what we call respect experts, experts mm. who haven't actually proven in any objective way that they are right, that they agree with the world, with the, with the external reality, but who are very convincing and compelling in the way they articulate their beliefs. And... Therefore, we will treat them all as people who know what they are doing, and we will never measure, and unless we're in this artificial case where they're debating each other, we will never measure how much they disagree with each other. That's the yeah. point we're trying to make with that example. Now, to your question, yes, I do think some more uh, moral philosophy training would be very useful to a lot of executives. Yeah. <laughs> 
So Olivia, I have to just, I have to say that I, I am very much in the same camp as you and, and, and those where it's like, oh yes, I agree with that. And then I hear the next person and then it's like, oh, well, I agree with you. And then it's, it's usually the last person that, that talks that I, you know, you end up going, oh, well, that's the person that I'm going to go with on, on those. So, uh, there. One, uh, I know Tim is is aching to get to music, so I will I will ask one last question, and this is this is a more of a personal thing because uh, in the acknowledgments of the bo- in the book, you you highlight one of our favorite people who is is Lania Gandhi, who has been on the show. She she was here a couple of years ago. We're actually going to interview her again coming up soon. I didn't and know that. He, That's great. Yeah, I didn't know yeah, you, yeah. you knew Lania. Yeah, and so yeah. Well, I just it, you, you know her. you. Yeah, she's she's fantastic, and so I just wanted to wanted you to share with our listeners because obviously uh, you acknowledged her in the book and she played a big part. But what did she contribute, and what did that mean for you and Danny and Cass as as part of this this group that helped pull all this book together? Well, you know, writing a book is difficult for anyone. Writing a book with three you know, three co-authors working together is a bit more difficult. Writing a book with three co-authors who live in different cities um, <laughs> and, and have, you know, and, and some of whom have jobs the rest of the time uh, is even more difficult. And doing all of this in the middle of a pandemic is, you know... <laughs> It's a bit tricky. So it took someone as miraculously organized, helpful, and uh, and and smart, and always positive, and in a constantly cheerful, good mood. Um, and I, I can't imagine anyone else on the planet who could have pulled this off, but Linnea did. So she's amazing. Yeah. Yeah, we we think the same thing. So yeah, we're we're absolutely in that camp. So you mentioned earlier about uh, being a jazz pianist, and there are so many great jazz pianists uh, in in the world today who are alive, much less who have created music over the last hundred years or so. Uh, are there any jazz pianists that, or maybe you know this this kind of sort of speaks to style? You know, what style of jazz do you prefer? But uh, who comes to mind as someone that you like to listen to on a regular basis? Uh, not very original, but Bill Evans, um, Keith Jarrett, and in a oh, different yeah. style, Oscar Peterson. Those would be my my most free. when when I don't have any ideas. Those are the ones I ask Spotify to play. <laughs> do you like to listen to music while you work? I do. I do. It actually does not improve my productivity, but I do it anyway. <laughs> we've had we've had lots of people. We ask that question quite often, and you know, some people will say, "Yes, I do," when it's doing mundane types of things. But if I have to be writing or using, you know, uh, you know, more cognitive functions, then I can't. Do you have any distinction between? what type of work you're doing when you listen to music or is it just, nope, I, I'm, I'm good across the board. I should have that distinction because the research actually supports what you, what you just described. It, uh, it shows that you are less productive when there is music uh, and, and you're trying to do something that is cognitively taxing. Um, but I know I must say I'm not as disciplined as, <laughs> <laughs> as you are. I just put the music on and live with it. Yeah, that's what I, I do. Yeah, I had a personal experience. I got to see Oscar Peterson um, many years ago at, in a in a very beautiful hall that was the very first concert in the hall. 
that was built here in the in St. Paul, Minnesota. And he was not only fantastic as a performer, but a most gracious person. And I, I, I saw him a couple times since then, but he didn't live much beyond that. And it was such a surprise because jazz pianists are geniuses and could be Keith Jarrett was not exactly known as like the most even tempered guy. And, you know, and so to see this kind of compassion and personality uh, of generosity with Oscar Peterson was, was a real joy for me. Are are there any, any experiences you've had with live music that were just stunning? Uh, I wish I I had had the same, uh, the same experiences you described. Um, But, you know, on, on your point about, the, the personalities of people not being what we expect, that's an experience that we, we all have at one point or another. <laughs> yeah, that, yeah. You know, that's that someone who is, who, you know, who we expect to be obnoxious or, or, you know, or bad tempered or whatever is actually lovely. And conversely, that someone who we expect to be lovely is a complete jerk. That I, I, Somehow I find this happens all the time. And, Speaking of matters of judgment, it forces us to recognize that people are a lot more unpredictable <laughs> than we give them credit for. I find this. Well, and I, th- I think that's really true, too. And today, with social media and everybody putting out a, a Facebook persona or a social media persona that is curated, that is the perfect person but then when you actually get to meet that person, you go, oh, maybe you're not that same type of person that you have portrayed yourself to be as you've kind of curated the life that you want people to think you are. So Exactly, which, by the way, should be a good reason for people not to curate their persona online too much <laughs> because they're going to get caught eventually. Yeah, yes. Yes. yeah very interesting. Olivier, thank you very, very much for your time, for your conversation. Thank you for writing the book. We are uh, big fans of the work and uh, are grateful that you've taken time to compile all this fabulous research and and write it up in this way. So thank Thank you. Thank you very much, guys. This was fun. Welcome to our grooving session where Tim and I groove on what we learned from our discussion with Olivier, have a free-flowing conversation, and talk about whatever else comes into our noisy brains. Fantastic. Perfect. Now, now, now you know, that was Slam probably button. the easiest brain descriptor that we've ever had. It was just so... Because my, my brain is full of noise, you know? Yeah. It's usually uh, nothing- that... Kind of noise, not not the good musical noise. It's just static. No, no. there was nothing but net on that man. That was just <laughs> perfect. That was just, that was just perfect. Okay, so we did have a great discussion, and I just before we actually kind of get into what we want to groove on, can I just say that when talking to Olivier, he reminded me of something that uh, one of our earlier guests said, uh, Shelley Archambault, about mm. how. The more senior you get in an organization, the the lower you need to speak, sort of the, the quieter that you need to speak, right? And there is something about Olivier that he has this experience of working with very high-powered people in very large corporations. And he's a very, very bright guy. 
Oh, yeah. And he doesn't beat you over the head with that. He, he approached us with such sophistication, and he was just very natural and authentic. And it's just a great, great conversation. And I think largely in part because of who he was, as, who he is as a person. There was a sense of grace almost that he was That's just very yeah. uh, open to having this conversation and it wasn't beneath him by any means. And he was very gracious in everything that he was doing. And as you said, he's brilliant. I mean, oh my God, yeah. the guy is working with Danny Kahneman and Cass Sunstein and, yeah. you know, probably did a vast majority of the work on this book and, you know, is... It's just amazing. So, yeah, truly. Okay. So where do you want to start, Kurt? What, uh, what do you want to start with in talking about our conversation with Olivier? The world is a noisy place. It is a place that is filled with this noise. And for the most part, it is invisible. I, I, I'm going to use a, a really bad analogy or metaphor. I forget which is which, but anyway. Um, so I used to do these team building programs where we would have teams work together and they would hand them a, a handheld video recorder back before phones had cameras and videos on them. And so they had to have this handheld video recorder and they would shoot a 60 second commercial. And one of the things that we always talk to them about is that, Hey, the microphone on that video camera is different than how our works differently than how our ears work. So if you're outside and you're videotaping something and there's wind going by that that wind creates noise and the microphone picks that up our ears don't necessarily hear we we are able to to you know take that out of how we do it or if you're in a in a restaurant and there's all the background noise right um yeah. we can we can hear the conversation that we're having but the microphone when it picks it up it doesn't necessarily differentiate so there's this all this background noise that's going on in the restaurant or if there's a fountain going on you know the bubbling of the water or a stream and so we have to be very uh, aware of that noise that's going on that we just don't hear otherwise and i think what um Olivier and 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 obviously Danny and Cass are talking about with this is that there's a bunch of this noise this unwanted judge or these the, the the judgments that uh aren't necessarily aligned that is going on that we are just that we don't hear that we don't that we don't see it it's invisible as he says so yeah the invisible enemy yeah like and that's a great way of thinking about it. And I love your description there, Kurt, because we we have noise going on all the time, but we tune it out. That mm. doesn't mean that it's going away. It's still there. Just because we don't hear the wind when when you and I are talking doesn't mean that the wind isn't there. When when we're in the restaurant, we tune out the background conversations, but they're still happening. And unfortunately, when it comes to decision making, those those things are influencing us. Yes. Those, that background noise is influencing our decision-making almost always in negative ways. Yeah. Well, and again, I, I, he brings up the examples that they brought up in the book. And the book is fantastic, by the way. It is It is this. It's, it's going to be required. It's going to be required reading in behavioral science classes, I'm sure, moving forward, just like thinking yep. fast and slow. But it, it's this idea that this is a really big issue, and he and and, and uh, Olivier brought up this uh, the insurance you know underwriters brought up 
that it impacts medicine, that it impacts law and some of those studies in there. Those are great. Yeah. You think about how big those issues were that he mentioned and then you go, but that's just the tip of that iceberg. Mm -hmm. Where else is noise making a huge detriment in how we make decisions or price things out or take action on different things. And I was just trying to figure out, I mean, just thinking about that, Tim, where else do you see besides, I mean, obviously we talked the insurance and medical and, and law, but where else do you see that maybe impacting? Uh, you know, the the first one that comes to mind is in sort of corporate and, uh, and business purchasing situations where mm. you're buying things that require bids, you know, construction, architectural services types of things where there's, there's a bidding process and there's going to be a bunch of variables in that. And there's going to be prices associated with varying, you know, with a wide variety of variables. And that's, that's a noisy environment to be in right there where- yeah. Where uh, there are tools, and, and we'll talk about this in a little bit, that could limit some of the noise and and you know try to push some of that noise off to the side. So, so those those kinds of decisions I think come to mind. How about you, Kurt? Well, I think just leadership in general. So mm-hmm. if you are on an executive team, or even if you're just leading a business unit or leading a team, and the decisions that you have to make that are under uncertainty. You know, I love their concept of this uh, noise audit, right? You give yeah. 200 judges the same cases that are written out and you see the breadth of, of how wide the disparity is in their sentencing pieces of that. I think if you did the same thing with leadership in within even within an organization and you said, yep. here are the top 20 leaders on the organization, here's the situation. And in some instances, as he said, noise isn't always bad. You want differences of opinions. But I think there are some of those leadership decisions that actually have a, this is the actual output of this that should be pretty consistent. And I would would guess, I don't have the research behind this, but I would guess that you probably get very widely uh, decisions that very huge based on individual differences and different things when they should be more centered around that target area. I would love to see the work done on this. I'd love to see the research that explored how when, when, when product managers pitch uh, an, an idea to leadership for funding, they're yeah. going to have to do some kind of an ROI analysis. They're going to have to come back with, if, if we spend this much money on uh, the development of the product, it'll be ready in this amount of time, and we're going to uh, and we're we're going to expect that it'll be rolled out to market in this period, and then we're going to get this kind of money back, right? And I would love to see, even within a single organization, what would all the senior leaders say, or uh, you know, a dozen senior leaders say, rather than just the single decision maker that gets to make a thumbs up, thumbs down, oftentimes in a relatively quick fashion you know, relatively short um, amount of analysis and could come back with, there's a, there's a, there's a lot of noise in the way we think about these kinds of things. Well, and I'm, I'm even thinking about, you have multiple products, right? And so they're all looking at this. And so what is those? And if you looked at all of the factors that go into that decision, all right. So if two 
potential products are similar, uh, they should get the same kind of assessment. Right. 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 But they probably won't because one product might be sexier. One product might be, you know, more mundane. One product might be in your area of expertise. One product might be outside of that. One product, all again, all of those different variables that come into play that if you were actually looking at the the factors that you want to make that decision on. If you had an algorithm that said, here, we're looking at time to market, the cost, the ROI, you know, that whatever those all those things, 12, 20 factors are that if they, these two are very similar, yeah, that they should be given the same kind of funding to do it or whatever that would be. And yet I must making a big leap here that I don't think they do because I think that there we get caught up in our emotions and this is the hot new thing. Oh, it's a Bitcoin kind of element. Yep. We got to jump on this bandwagon. That That's it. Absolutely. Uh, something that maybe we should spend just a minute on are the types of noise. Olivier yeah. did explain them, but maybe we could just do a quick synopsis here. Yeah. For well, he explained them wonderfully because he gave examples around each, but um, yeah. uh, I think so the, the three levels of noise, right? Um, so three types of noise, one being level noise, which is, I think the easiest one to understand. And you think about this from the perspective of judges, all right, there are lenient judges who tend to give, you know, lighter sentences. And then there are harsh judges who tend to give more strict or severe, um, sentences. And that's just a tendency that they have. And if, if you looked across the average, Oh, it might seem like all of these these sentences are good, but your sentence is determined by which judge you get on based on that. And that that is noise. Another one is occasion noise. And occasion noise is this idea that, hey, the time of day, the mood that I'm in, if it's sunny outside, if it's raining outside, that these external factors have an impact on how I will make a judgment. And again, the, the, the law one is a good one. This idea that if you, if you go out for parole at the end of the day, you might as well just stop and not even try because nobody's going to parole you. But if you go for parole in the morning, you're more likely to get it. Even if you have the same kind of baseline, various different pieces about why you should be uh, given parole. Those are external factors, and that's called occasion noise. The final one, and this is the one that I think Olivier says is really difficult sometimes to understand and to see, is what they call pattern noise. So these differences in idiosyncratic responses to the same case. So I might be a lenient judge, but man, I I really hate uh, child pornography. And so in that case, if you come in and it's a child pornography case, I am going to be strict. Now, the rest of my caseloads, I am really lenient on, but this is an idiosyncratic to my own personality and who I am. Something that's important about, thank you, that's a great explanation, Kurt. But something that's important about um, Danny and Cass and Olivier going through this breakdown is to help us start to think about the different kinds of, not just the different kinds of noise, but to reinforce the idea of noise is in a lot of places, just like biases are in a lot of places, heuristics and rules of thumb that we use for decision-making are in lots of places. And we 
are challenged by the authors to start thinking about, okay, there might be a bias. There might be some kind of a blind spot here. There might be a decision-making heuristic that we're using that's kind of fouling us up. The third thing is that there could be noise. Mm-hmm. There probably is noise. And, and this is a great way of thinking about what kind of noise might be getting into our system that's fouling up our decision-making. And they did a really nice piece at the beginning of the book that was this idea, they, they showed a bullseye. And they talked about the difference between bias and noise. And so I'll try to describe it really quickly. But if I get a bunch of bunch of arrows and they're all off up to the right, they're clustered really close together, that's typically a bias because what we're seeing is that they're clustered together. They all kind of act in the same way, but they're off from the center, from the bullseye of the target. Now, noise is this more general where things get scattered. And there's this scattering of, of the arrows across the bullseye or across the target. And so you can't really see a pattern to it. And it's an interesting way of looking at that and thinking about it. And I think it goes back to what you just said that, you know, there is bias that's going on. There are these heuristics, but there's also this noise that's happening within the world that we're doing. And so to understand that that's part of the impact on our judgments and uh, be able to limit the impact of that, I think is really cool. Just want to give a quick shout out to our buddy, Linnea Gandhi, uh, because she and Danny Kahneman came up with that those images that are at the beginning of the book for their HBR article from which the book ex- uh, uh, sprang. And we'll, ha- we'll have links in the, in the show notes too. Well, and we're talking with Linnea. And so she'll be actually the, yeah. the episode right after this. So listen to that conversation too, because it'll be uh, very fantastic. Very fantastic. Yeah. yeah. So what else, Tim? Oh, the big, the big thing for me, like the coolest little, you know, molecule of idea, the little sparkle in my brain was decision hygiene. <laughs> this idea that okay, we and, and uh, Olivier's metaphor with washing your hands, we wash our hands to get rid of all the germs. We don't know what germs we're getting rid of. Yeah, right. Flu, a cold. If it's COVID, I'm just washing my hands because I know. know if I wash my hands. I'm less likely to get sick. But we wash our hands. That's the thing is that we do. We take time to wash our hands. And if we think about decision hygiene as a way of, we're not always going to be sure which problems we're, we don't even have to be sure which problems we're going to wash away. But the fact is that we're going through the process to wash them away, to clean up our decision-making is a really powerful thing. And he talked about these these three things that I just absolutely loved. Uh, some of it built on other other research, right? But but he summarized it really really well. And um, and he, he talked about what are the things that that help us make these good decisions. The last one is the one that I I loved the most, and that is the style of our decision making. Like it's having a decision making approach, right? It's a mindset, an open mindset to our decision making then that style is really, really important to making good decisions. And I thought that was really cool because as hard as it might be, that's something that we can learn. That open-minded thinking method, the idea that you want to look for evidence or opinions that would contradict you, right? The opposite of confirmation bias. Pow. Oh my gosh. That was was one of those pieces that – 
I think is just fantastic. Now, it's not easy. It is definitely not easy because confirmation bias is real and it happens and it happens yeah. below our conscious level and all of the factors. We've talked about this many times before on the show. But if we could adopt a more open-minded thinking method of making decisions or even thinking that we are actively looking for those things that might disprove our beliefs. Think about what that would do for how we approach our politics and the way that we interact with others in the world and allowing those ideas to say, hey, I'm going to actively think about what are the arguments on the opposite side of this belief and look for that information to see if it really is something that I should be taking into consideration. And now the hard part is confirmation bias is going to give you that information. And even if you're actively looking at it, it's going to, it's going to skewer that to be less. But the fact that you're actually looking, I think, is very powerful. So two things come to mind with regard to that. The first thing that we could do is really push that open-mindedness from the perspective of wanting it, of desiring mm. it. Right, that if we have a little bit of internal intrinsic motivation to head in that direction, that that can help. It's not, you know, we're not just giving it all over to willpower, but that could help. And the second thing, and I'm thinking back to our conversation with John Levy, um, or with a uh, conversation with Seth Stevens uh, Davidowitz about who we hang around with, yeah. who our kids hang around with, make a difference. So we could we could improve our wiring, our neuroplasticity. Like what? What fires together wires together to kind of you know jump or jump back to AJ Jacobs. But if we want to change our decision making, maybe we look for people who are really good decision makers, who are really good at challenging the status quo, challenging our 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 biases in such a way that we actually have conversation with people who kind of bring us into a social environment where we go, oh, that's the normal way of thinking about things. Well, and think about uh, this from a leadership perspective. We talked a lot with with Olivier about leadership and this idea that, you know, it's just not the mode of leadership that we've been accustomed to. Leadership have this mantra of like, I make the decisions and we're going to we're going to keep going at it and we're going to just power through and this is the way that it's going to go. And we don't value that a leader can change his or her mind. And I go back to your, what you're just saying about the group of people that surround and, and going back to Shelly Archibald, who we talked about a, a little bit earlier, this idea that as you get higher up in the organization, you have more people that are just yes people that are surrounding you. And so do you need to have those people in your life that are going to not be yes people, that they're going to push you and say, that's a stupid idea, Kurt. You know, you are just, you know, believing your own BS. And I don't mean behavioral science there. And I, <laughs> you know, right. but this, this concept of having a devil's advocate and this idea of putting people in our, our sphere of influence that may have different backgrounds, different ideas, different ways of looking at the world, it goes back into some of the diversity pieces that we know the more diverse the team is, the better your decision-making typically is, particularly if it's around creative ideas. All of that comes into play. But I love this concept that you talk about of helping create that open mindset, not just by willpower alone, but who are we surrounding ourselves with and getting those people 
who have more of an open mindset, who are more open yeah. to their own way of thinking and doing that will help us in then making that happen as well. One last piece I'll, I'll dig in on because I ranted on this in, in the, in the interview. And I think it's very true is I think we do a really piss poor job in our educational world of teaching kids, teaching our, our students how to actually think and make these judgments and look at alternative evidence and to take the scientific method and to say, look, the way that this works is that we have a certain body of information and knowledge right now. And to the best of our understanding, this is what that implies. But once we get new information in, that should then change our judgment. What was the, what was the John, the, John Maynard Keynes? Yeah. When what he, was that? Excuse me. When new data is introduced to me, I change my mind. What do you do? Yeah. I mean, again, That's fantastic. it's like, it's like this idea that, all right, I know. And, and part of that is understandable, right? We, we, we put a lot of our self-identity into the things that we believe and we think about that gets wrapped into who we are. And it's difficult to go, well, if I change that, then I change who I am. And that's scary. So, so why not have it? It, it, trained when you're six, seven, eight, 10, 12, 14 years old. Why not just have that be a part of the, like Annie Duke is doing this, yeah. right? She, she is bringing decision-making skills to kids in grade school. Like why not introduce it so that it's the social norm? This is the yeah. way we make decisions. This is how we talk about things. And the idea too, that uh, what I love about Annie, which I think gets into this open-minded um, thinking model is this thinking in, in probabilities, thinking in bets as her book was, right? This idea yeah. that if you, instead of going, yes, this is what I believe, you go, I believe this with a 90% certainty. Okay. That allows you then when new information comes in, it's not this, I believe this, I don't believe this. It now comes in and go, oh, yeah, all right. That lowers the probability of what. So now it's a 70%. Maybe it's even 50%. But it's not going from, I believe this and this is part of who I am to, I don't believe this. It is now a more rational look at the evidence based upon everything that's in there. And most of the time, you know, we don't get evidence that fully refutes something. There's, you know, we're, we don't work in the, in the physics arena where all of a sudden you, as, as I think Sivane did, you know, talked about this idea that you do an experiment and if it says water boils at a hundred and you say, well, no, All we right. show that water boils at 80. Well, that disproves that, that, that is yeah. a, a, a contradiction to what that, that rule is. That's not how most of our decisions get made because there's not that clear cut piece. And so no. having that ability to look at things from a, a perspective of, percentages or probabilities, I think is really powerful. Well, there's a couple of other decision hygiene things that we should probably talk about though, Kurt. There were a couple oh, yeah. of others in, in the book. And uh, I love the stuff about the medical guidelines that particularly yeah. impacted me. The APGAR score, I think very vividly about the experience of uh, when my first child was born and the, the, the medical t crew just going through the APGAR, like they just they could just click through. They they literally they knew the checklist in their head, and they walked through. They went A, P, G, 
A-R. And and it was really cool to go, oh, because this, this little guy, my first son was born uh, just under five pounds. Yeah. He was premature. And so there was this nervousness uh, that, that we had. And the APGAR score was high enough to be considered in the normal range. Yeah. And that was like, oh, okay. To have, that was a really empower, empowering thing for me as a parent. So I think that it's good that that medical teams use checklists like this or guidelines that are very powerful. And, and I like the idea that the power behind these guidelines is that you're breaking down judgment into discrete pieces. So that you're in APGAR, you're looking at this, and then you're looking at this, and you're looking at, you know, so A, B, C, D, that's not, it's A, P, A, whatever. Um, but, you know, you get that, you get the gist. And the thing that I think they talk about in the book, and we talked a little bit about it in, in here, is just making sure that those discrete pieces are as concrete as possible. In other words, that they're as clearly defined as possible. So again, if you're from an organizational perspective, you need to clearly define what you mean when you say blue or when you say, you know, this is a safe procedure or this is whatever the whatever the measurement is that you're putting into that guideline. Be very, very precise in what that means so that you don't get some, you know, Tim, you look at it and you go, I think this is definitely blue. And I look at it and I go, that's not blue at all. That's green, you know, and you're then we, blind. Yeah. yes. And as my kids would say, yes, um, you know, <laughs> but there is this piece of making sure that that's there. I think some other things that they talked about is this idea of noise audits and we didn't oh, really yeah. get into it. The book goes into noise audits and there's actually uh, a, a whole chapter on what, how you to do that or uh, yeah. Great outline appendix, I think, and something, but it basically says, here are the steps that you can do in order to do this and the ways of doing that, which again, if you can do that within your organization, fantastic, because it will probably highlight some of these areas where it points out. So buy the book just for that, right? Um, and then I think there's also algorithms, right? So we can, you know, look at these decision-making algorithms. And I think that gets scary for people going, oh, well, you're taking all of our freedom and autonomy out oh. of these decisions. But I think there are ways to build in some algorithmic pieces to assist us in our decision-making. I know they're doing this a lot in medicine. Well, and since we are the ones who are creating these algor algorithms or formulas, basically these are formulas, we get to choose how they perform. So let's build them in such ways that uh, serve our hum our humanness and our particular frailties with a certain amount of rigidity or or not. I, I think yeah. that those are absolutely op opportunities that we have. And and again, we know that there 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 can be issues with that, right? You can you can build in biases because yeah. you're doing machine learning to look at all the stuff, and the biases are already there, and so it just actually exacerbates that. So yes, we understand there's difficulties there, but I think there's some there's value too if we just do it right and we make sure that we think about it, and all of those just go into this bigger picture, which is des, you know decision hygiene. Let's make a concerted effort to make better decisions. And if we can all do that, we're going to have a much better world. So with that, we're going to have a bonus track and groove idea that Tim is going to talk about in just a minute. This is Tim with the bonus track and groove idea for the week. The conversation with Olivier Siboney was absolutely mesmerizing. 
Olivier was able to summarize many of the key tenets from the book Noise that he wrote with Danny Kahneman and Cass Sunstein into an entertaining and insightful conversation. Key to this discussion was that noise is all around us and has large negative impacts on our lives. They define noise as unwanted variability in human judgment. And note that this is not the variability of opinions among people. Disagreement and variability are often welcomed in our life. However, noise can have very large and negative impacts when we have a different diagnosis on a disease or the different rates that underwriters charge for insurance policies that are similar risks and different sentences handed out by judges for similar crimes to people with similar backgrounds. These noisy judgments have large negative impacts on business and society. Olivier also discussed some of the ways to combat noise, specifically calling for us to do a better job at decision hygiene. The idea was that we need to update our mindset and use tools to help us combat noise. In particular, Olivier discussed the idea of having an open mindset, one that actively looks for contradicting information or opinions. This type of mindset tells us and helps us make more informed and better judgments. But as he outlines, this is hard. And the idea of modifying our beliefs is contrary to what many people think of as good leadership qualities. Additionally, he talked about using checklists and using noise audits to help with this as well. Okay, now it's time for our groove idea for the week. We want you to try to practice an open mindset for one day. We are asking you to go out and actively look for information that is contrary to an opinion that you already hold. Let us know how it goes. With that, we hope that you have enjoyed this episode. We definitely did. We please share it with your friends or on social media. We appreciate you spreading the good news. So now go out this week and find your groove.